Well, we are here in uh, Romans chapter 3, getting a few veins of thought to follow here through Romans chapter 3. I'm just going to pick up reading in 9, verse 9 again of chapter 3. We're going to make it through these various quotations from the Old Testament this morning and ponder on the ramifications of this. So let's let's read from verse 9, please. The question is, what then are we better than they? Are we Jews better than those non-Jews? Just to help you remember there. No, not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. So listen carefully, my friends, listen. As a servant or slave does the work of his master, so does the sinner do the work of sin. And I think that's a helpful way of understanding the, the whole thing that we have been reading. It's a way of understanding what, it, what he meant when he said that they are all under sin. As a servant or a slave does the work of his master, so the sinner does the work of sin, who is his master. That is what the teaching in the book of Romans is teaching us about sin. So from verse 10, since this is so, since... Since men are servants of sin, it says, As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. Mark these words like none. Mark these words like all. None who understands. There is none who seeks after God. None. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. I like the King James. It says their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, this is an important phrase here, so follow the logic of this whatever the law says it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God this this inspired word of God is is meant for men Religious and non-religious, Jew and Gentile, Jew and Greek, it is meant for men to understand their guilt before whom? 
it's not really meant for them to understand their guilt before one another. Primarily, this is meant that men would understand their guilt before God. And this is why Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. It is the one way that men will find their way to peace before God. Because the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. We really, really need to understand that whatever the law says, and this is the law of Moses, of course, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Verse 20, Therefore, by deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. By the right actions of men, by the good actions of men, no men will be made just before God. No flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law, this is a really, really important truth, by the law is the knowledge of sin. Sin is the subject of Romans chapter 1, the second half, of Romans chapter 2, and of Romans chapter 3 up to this point. Sin is the subject. And I don't think any of us understands what sin is at work at, what sin is doing. I don't think we understand the depth of what has been corrupt and damaged by sin. Whoever has made it to this point in the book of Romans, if he has been reading carefully, he and, and you should have noticed, you must notice, do you notice that it says men are bad? Have you guys noticed that? Men are bad. And and that's putting it lightly, right? If, if I say men are bad, honestly, you probably would prefer if that's all I would say because we don't really want to be reminded of any of the details of the badness of men. Might make you mad. Might make you want to argue with me or with the scripture. Look at the sins of chapter 1 and verse 29. We've been here before. Go there again, please. 129. Look at these sins. Filled with all unrighteousness. And here's all the flavors of unrighteousness. Here are the, how you recognize unrighteousness. Being filled with all unrighteousness. Sexual immorality. Wickedness. Covetousness. Maliciousness. Full of envy. Murder. Strife. Deceit. Evil-mindedness. Whisperers. Backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud. You put pride and murder in your same list of the bad things of men. Do you put murder and deceit in the same list? You don't. I don't. Murder's bad. Lying is kind of bad. All I mean in saying that is we want to soften some kinds of sins, like lying and feel like they're not quite as bad as murder in our minds. All he's doing is telling you what unrighteousness looks like. That's the word. What does unrighteousness look like? 
lying, murder, whispering, deceit. So what's the conclusion? You're bad. You're bad. The gospel must come with the bad news first. If you don't understand in your own heart the bad news, if you don't get the bad news, you don't get the good news. You'll never get the good news if you don't get the bad news. And it is in your nature for you to hold yourself apart from bad men. You don't want to see yourself bad. It's embarrassing. It's shameful. It's hopeless. As gospel reasoning develops from this list that we started reading here, it becomes more and more clear that the Word of God is not accusing the wicked while comforting the good. There isn't a little section in here for you to go, I stand with these guys and and not with those ones that are bad. There is no section here for you yet to go, I'm good, I'm fine, I'm with these good guys. There are no good guys. There are no righteous ones here yet. This becomes increasingly more and more clear that if you break the law of conscience which is one of the group being considered in Romans so far. If you break the law of conscience or if you break the law of Moses, either one, how's that end? How does that end? One of the words it uses is perish. Both Jews and Greeks look at chapter 2, verse 12. As many as have sinned without the law, will perish. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. Don't don't fool yourself into thinking that that was an out. Being judged by the law is far more ruthless than being judged by your conscience and you're never going to survive being judged by your own conscience. What is the point? There's none righteous. None. Are all really and truly guilty is a question that is being addressed. The reason it is being addressed is so that men would hear. It's so that you and I would hear. It's so that we would long for the hope of salvation. It's so that we would revel in the offer of salvation. That these grim Statements are made about the state of man, about about your soul, about your badness. The reason it is grim is so you might long to escape the grimness of it. It's, it's, it's why it's spelled out like this. All the world guilty before God. The Spirit of God wants us to be sure and understand this. None does good. It's grave. Guilt before God is grave. You know, this is one of the very, very few things in life that by the time you see the evidence of this with your eyes, in other words, let's say you've heard the claims of the gospel once, ten times, a hundred times. By the time you see the evidence that 
proves it or that denies it, by the time you see it with your eyes, it's too late to take a new opinion. At the end of this age, and the goats are put over here and the sheep are put over here, it's too late to change your mind. If you don't get it now, if you don't get it right now, you don't get it. That's why this is so grave. That's why this is so serious. Gospel's serious, isn't it? So we have to think with great spiritual mindedness as we look at what's being said here. Verses 10 to 18 portrays the scene before God's eyes, the the, the humanity before God's eyes is, is what we're looking at in verses 10 to 18. But men don't see with God's eyes and and men don't ponder with God's mind. And so I believe it's natural for men to look at what's being said there as the worst examples of men and that they're probably not really making reference to us in this list of things that's been described there. It just seems too extreme. One of the reasons I say that, and one of the reasons that some could be confused in, in reading this and trying to ponder how it applies to themselves is, is maybe like in verse 123, it, it speaks about idolatry and making images and worshiping images. And when you read that, you're like, I never made an image. Maybe you have. I mean, they're, they're not totally out of character with life in California, having idols and images. But maybe you're like, well, that's just, I, I just never done that. I wouldn't do that. Or maybe you have never practiced the worst sort of sexual sins mentioned, like there's an example in verse 27. One you can read there. Maybe you've read that. You're like, I, I, I wouldn't do that. I, I never did that. What, what would you think? This is an interesting question to me. If you saw a man charging his son with these sins here, if you saw a man very, very sternly and strongly speaking to his son and telling his son, this is who you are, son, and you happen to be sitting on the other side of the room and you're watching this man saying these things to his son, what would you think about that guy? Maybe you would think, wow, Aren't you being a little extreme? Aren't you being a little intense? Saying that to your son. What's the other option? If it wasn't mean, if that father saying this to his son was not being mean, then what would he be doing? You would be hearing a father exhorting his son in love, wouldn't you? You'd be hearing a man who knows something his son doesn't know and and his father is pleading with him that he might understand, that he might know, but he doesn't know. So that what? So that he could take the right action. So that he could know the reality of the circumstance and he could make the changes necessary so that the very worst outcome might be avoided. So I want you to look at this list with me as you are 
listening to a father speak to his son, as you are listening to the Creator speak to his creatures. This next little section as we ponder this is going to be what we call mouth and feet without fear of God. Mouth and feet without fear of God. Look at verse 13. Verse 13. We, we looked at the last section last week. Verse 13 says, Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they practice deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. The mouth of the depraved, is what is being highlighted, is called an open tomb. The throat, an open sepulcher. It was interesting. I never had noticed or, or known this before. In Jeremiah 5.16, there's a verse that says, their quiver is like an open tomb. Jeremiah 5.16, their quiver is an open tomb. What is a quiver? A quiver is where you keep arrows. If you had a place where you keep arrows and somebody called it metaphorically an open tomb, what does it mean that they have an open tomb hanging on their hip or on their back? What does it mean? It means it's death waiting to happen. A quiver of arrows is death waiting to happen. How is it? How is this concept utilized here in this section? Their, their throat is an open sepulcher. It means death is, is waiting to happen out of the throat of the mouth. The mouth curses. The mouth spills out bitterness. Sometimes it doesn't actually make it out of your lips. Sometimes you keep it in your mind, right? Sometimes bitterness, murderous, Words, cruel words, slanderous words, sometimes they're coming out of your mind and never out of your mouth. Either in the mind or coming right out of the mouth, harming, injuring, bad wishing, I wish you were dead, you're a loser, things like this. James 3 8 and 9 comments on this. He puts it in a great contrast. James 3, 8 and 9. He says, No man can tame the tongue. You guys remember James speaking about the tongue? No man can tame it, he says. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Paul's going to speak about the poison of an asp here in a second. A snake. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. James says this as a rebuke. He doesn't say this just as a simple statement of fact. This is terrible that the tongue that you cannot contain and train can be used to bless God and can be used to harm men. It should not be so. Why is it so? You ever wondered why it's so? You ever wondered why your mouth will, will speak with foulness, will speak with slander, will complain? Will you ever wondered after you've done that, why, why do I do that? 
you realize that there's a there's like a germ in you that's called sin? The curse germ, the slander germ, the fool germ, the mean germ. It's 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 one of the ways sin sprouts life in a person. It speaks. Does your mouth expose sin in you? I, I think it does. If you don't think your mouth exposes sin in you, then you're not listening very well. The mouth, the Scripture says, is connected to your heart, doesn't it? Out of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Why are there mean words in your heart? Why? Why do you have mean words in your heart? You ever feel like you're the second or third person in the audience sitting outside yourself wondering, why do you you say that? Why do you do that? Why? There's this thing in you called sin. And and as the Father is explaining this to His Son, and, and we could very rightly say God the Father is explained to all the sons of earth, your throat is an open sepulcher. Your throat. It's a place spewing bitterness, spewing death. Even if it's only the occasional mean, wicked thought about your spouse or about your boss. The UPS man. James simply restates the same thing. No one can tame the tongue. He doesn't say why, but Paul is saying why here. It's because there's sin at work in you. There's sin at work in you and I. There's sin at work. It's deadly. It's it's also deceitful and it's poisonous. The mouth is deceitful. Does, does your mouth tell lies? I love reminding you that in, in, in Cambodia, Cambodian Christians would lie to their children all the time. And the first few times we would ask them about this, they would say, well, they're just little lies. They're just white lies. And so we would ask them back, you know, teaching them, helping them. Do you understand little lies are just, they're lies. Your, your little lies could be the ones that, that he's talking about here. Or they could be huge lies. Maybe you're perjuring yourself on a grand jury. You're lying to protect a, a guilty person who should go to jail. There's little lies and they're big lies. They're all lies. It's deceit. With their mouths, with their tongues, they practice deceit. This is what sin does in your mouth. The other thing it does is it stays quiet when it might reveal deception. Sometimes you're standing there, someone's blaspheming God, someone's lying on your friend, and you sit there quiet. You don't say anything. That's a form of deception. You you could be a witness to truth, but you bite your tongue, you hold your tongue, you're afraid. Why do you do that? You ever feel ashamed when you catch yourself? Ever feel, why would I do that? Why would I not speak up for the truth? Why? 
you should feel bad that you didn't do that and then you should wonder why do I do that and God's spirit is telling you here he's telling you here there's sin at work in you there's sin at work in your mouth there's sin at work holding your tongue there's sin at work wagging your tongue this is what sin does it's at work in you it's at work on you maybe your lies don't get people killed maybe your lies aren't conspiring to steal but their lies your exaggeration is a gross sin and your timid silence is deadly verse 15 moves on to a slightly different subject other than the mouth it speaks about the ways of the depraved the ways so we move from the mouth of the depraved to the ways of the depraved look at verse 15 their feet are swift to shed blood destruction and misery are in their ways and the way of peace they have not known there's no fear of God before their eyes the ways of the wicked are contrasted with peace here In other words, there is a way to travel life that is called the way of peace. But men don't practice the way of peace. They practice these other ways that are mentioned here. Bloodshedding, destruction, misery. Again, one of the things that I think is is hard for you and I to see you might be looking at this charge of, of shedding blood, for example, and you're like, well, I've never killed anybody and I wouldn't. That would be a terrible thing to do. I would never do that. And so we, we kind of find ourselves stepping aside from this charge or stepping back saying, you know, that's them, that's not me. There's, there's two ways I'd, I'd like to help you think about that correctly one is the Lord Jesus spoke about anger as being the sin of murder so men love to look at the root the root law the root sin do not murder and and we love to say okay I've never done that sin and so we exempt ourselves from that one but Murder has a branch called anger. The Lord Jesus taught about this too. And and what He helped us understand was that when you break this little, quote-unquote, little piece of the law of murder, you're breaking the same one. You've, You've broken this law. The Lord Jesus didn't tell you that to make you feel badly. He told that to you so that you would know yourself in truth. He told that so that you would be able to rightly see, I, I really am a sinner. And, and if you listened to the teachings of Jesus and if you followed the progression of his revelation, you remember and you knew the wages of sin is death and I don't want to die. I am a sinner. I, I need to be saved. I need help because I, I can't stop doing these things that, that prove that I'm a sinner. That's the point of the law. The point of the law is to magnify all the ways that, that simply reveal the fact you're a sinner. 
And men should dread, men should dread the verdict. Guilty sinner. Because the wages of sin is death. So men need to learn to connect these things. So when you read this with me, their feet are swift to shed blood, you're like, well, I don't murder anybody, so I'm good. Well, it's not as true as you think. Now, part two of that, I said there were two things I was going to mention. This was interesting. I don't remember what commentator pointed me down this path. There's a, a man named Hazael in the book of Second Kings. We're not even going to turn there. I'm just going to tell you real briefly, remind you about who this man Hazael is. He's a servant of the king of Syria. He comes to the prophet I believe it's Elisha. He comes with a request because the king in Syria is sick and he's going. He's afraid he's going to die and he wants to know, you know how, how am I going to do? How are things going to turn out? Go ask the prophet. Hazael goes, says, hey, I've got these gifts from the king. Will you tell us how the king's going to do? And the prophet said, he'll recover. And then this is actually a very interesting story because Elisha just stood there and stared at him. It says until he got uncomfortable, just stared at him. And then the prophet said, but he won't live. And then he goes on to prophesy about how Hazael is going to kill the king and then rip open women, murder, people across the countryside. And then Hazael responds, what am I, a dog? How do do such things? And, and the thing that's fascinating, it's insightful here. Listen, listen carefully here. Hazael went back to the king and said, you'll live, and he murdered and destroyed all kinds of people in his own land. And it may very well have been when he replied to the prophet that he could never see himself doing such a thing. It may be that that was an offensive prophetic thought to him. And the point is, all of you will wake up to a circumstance in your life from time to time in your life and you will be wondering to yourself how could I have done such a thing how did I get here and you know what the answer is sin your feet are swift to shed blood you're not excluded from these charges of, of wickedness. And the fact is, is that sin manifests itself and it does its work on you and I in such a way that if you come to Christ in repentance and if you seek Him for forgiveness and look to Him as your Lord, then, then you are able to follow Him and to stay close to Him and He actually protects you from the sinfulness of sin. He guards you from the sinfulness of sin. But you need a king. 
to save you from the tyranny of sin because sin is brutal. It is an awful taskmaster. And the wage of sin is death. And the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ the Lord. So as we're reading these charges here, the way of peace they do not know. Their ways are busy in bloodshed. Their ways are busy in misery. Busy in destruction. And then we get to the root cause, the book of Romans at 1, around 18, 17, somewhere there, begins with this concept, and then we're kind of closing up with this concept at 3.18. Look at what it says at 3.18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. By man's nature, now this is a thing really, really helpful for us to understand. By your nature, by my nature, We speak, we think, we plan, we endeavor, we work, we do the things we do without a fear of God. That's what sin is. Sin is just kind of taking on the world and taking on life and making your plans and solving your problems with no fear of God. That's what sin is. Your great sin, and and my sin comes back to this ignorance and apathy toward God. Man doesn't fear Him and they are enslaved to sin because that is the only thing we know how to obey until we come to have a new king under Christ. So let's listen to this warning of love. This is a warning of love. Men and women have this unenviable nature. We have this nature that is... Horrible. No, no creature in the universe looks on the heart and the life of a sinful man with, with the things that sin leads men to do. Nobody looks at that and envies that. Can, can you see, do you understand how your sinful nature is unlike the nature of God? Do you see that? Do you understand that? Ultimately, that that is what the charge was back in chapter 1. Wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Well, that's what a sinner is. Ungodly. They're not like God. Can you see that your nature is bent towards ungodliness? Can you see that? Do you see that as a, as, as a flag just kind of flaps in the wind so your nature is just bent toward sinfulness? So the scripture here warns us. It warns us. This is a loving warning that the corruption of sin has infected the mind, it's infected the mouth, it's infected your ways. And... If you perceive this as something being judgmental and and stingy and denying of you, you misunderstand the love of the Father who proclaims to His creation, this is your state, this is where you're at, this is where you're going. The Father warns His creature. He's warning His creatures. He's warning His people. 
It's a concerned father that speaks this way and shares the reality of this handicap to his son. The person who will only navigate his life by his instincts and won't listen to these is going to end in death. It can be kind of depressing for us to understand the reality that the corrupting effect of sin is at work on your life every hour of every day. It really is. It's a pressure on you like water on a dam. That's what sin is. Just push. And it makes men godless. And you don't even have to feel wickedness at work. You don't have to feel like you're becoming wicked for sin to affect its work on you. That's what the scripture is teaching us here. This is the this is the word of God's spirit that we would understand here. Think of the constant potential in your mind to think of evil things or to invent lies or the words that harm people. Think of the ways that you can scheme to get money or to get revenge or to gain a name for yourself. Think about the mind that is dwelling on the things that sometimes come out of your mouth sometimes turn into action and sometimes evidence what we know are shameful characteristics. Think about these things. They're in your mind and they come from sin that is bound up in humanity. It's part of your DNA. And I wonder if someday if a microscope is strong enough or is able to look at the right thing that that even science could point to this thing called sin and the nature of man. It is hardwired into men. It is a reality of men. And it's inescapable. And the Word of God here warns of its peril. I stumbled across a very fascinating illustration. There is an asp. I don't remember the name of this asp. There are several kinds. The one referred to here is probably the Egyptian cobra, but an asp in general is a poisonous snake. And there is a certain asp whose fangs are very, very well concealed in its mouth. So concealed that this particular asp raised in captivity cannot be milked of its venom. The the fangs are too far back and they're too tucked up inside. You can't get the poison out of the snake's mouth. And the only way it can actually bite is it's, I forget the technical term, but this this snake does this. And and they wag back and forth. It doesn't see very good. It's not aggressive. And it's almost like it gets its victim on accident. If its head is going to the side and coming back, its tooth can puncture a victim. And its venom can go into somebody. It never plots the death 
of a man and it never plans to, to cripple. But this venom, this venom is so, so strong, it melts bone. It melts bone. The thing that was intriguing to me is this is not a snake that's stalking, looking for something to kill, but its deadliness. And the, the, the person describing this didn't say it strikes on accident, so I'm probably speaking too far. But it seemed to me that, that when it does do its proper thing and, and cause this damage to happen, it's, it seems almost accident to me. So here, here was the comparison. Sometimes you open your mouth and you say something. Sometimes you make a plan. You're driving in your car. You build something. And you kill somebody with your car. Or you wired something in a home that, that burst into flames and killed somebody. You kill somebody on accident. You know, it's very common in our culture to say, well, that was an accident. That was not my fault. But if you're behind the wheel and you kill somebody, it's your fault. It wasn't your brother's fault. It wasn't your mom's fault. It was your fault. If you messed up the wiring on a project you were doing, or if you built the footings on a deck or a house wrong and and someone died, you, you might say it wasn't my fault, but... It's kind of like this snake. Sin, sin is at work in you and I like this. So when you and I read the lists of the worst expressions, the worst pictures of sin, and you exclude yourself from it, just realize that sin is never done working on a person until we get to the end of this age. If you're not a murderer today, praise God. You might be next week. You might be next year. Could you be like Hazael? You don't even know your own heart. You don't know the circumstances that might combine to build into some situation where you would become a murderer. The the point is, is, is that men like you and I, people, we do not understand sin's workings in us. We do not understand... The, the depths of the corruption of sin in men. That is the point of what is being explained to us here. Romans chapter 3. We see sin either present and actual right now. Sometimes sin can be horribly enslaving to you right now. The worst kinds of sins right now. Maybe you are a murderer. Or these things could be Juvenile forms of these terrible sins. You may be living in a state of sin that, that, that isn't fully developed into its worst form. The point is, is that we are sinful creatures by our nature. It's called the depravity of man. Not every man is the worst example of every sinner. That every man is an example of a sinner, right? By the time we get to verse 23, which is not where we're going 
today, but it says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's the point of this whole section of the gospel. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin is a little bit like, sometimes it's like the slow and persistent dripping water on a stalagmite. Stalagmite is the kind of thing in a cave that grows up and water is dripping on it and the mineral that's in the water slowly builds up and it just slowly turns into something taller and taller and bigger and bigger. But if you sat there and watched it for a day, would you see it grow? Is it growing? This is the nature of sin. And I want you to take some time to ponder the nature of sin on humanity and ponder the nature of sin on you. You and I desperately need the grace of God. The understanding that comes that we might grow in our understanding of sin. The way that we begin to go about doing this is by contemplating that last verse there, verse 18, where he said, there is no fear of God before their eyes. You see, sin blinds men and it conceals men from God's good and his perfect will. Men in their sin actually don't like God and they're fearful of God. Men in their sinful condition do not like him because they picture him as somebody who wants to restrict fun from them, to take good from them. Sin makes you think your Savior is the enemy. And you've got to really contemplate on that reality. If somebody could see the fear of God. Now this is an interesting thing here in verse 18 it says there is no fear of God before their eyes if you could see the fear of God what does the scripture imply would be different it it, it means men would hear these warnings It, it, it would mean that they could actually perceive the reality of these truths that God is speaking to him seeing the fear of God is to hear the warnings of sin and agree with them. Is is sin murder in your mouth? <clears throat> is sin navigating death and destruction in your life? If there's fear of God in a man, he hears this and you know it's true. You can't deny it's true. Seeing the fear of God results in a dread of sin. It results in seeing sin for what it is. And seeing God who is explaining to us and speaking to us that He is actually the only one for us who could be for us with any sort of true goodness. And the preaching of the gospel always says repent of your sin. Preaching of the gospel says, repent of your sin. Leave your sin. Don't love it. Don't love the thing that costs the life of the Savior. Don't walk in the thing that costs the life of the Savior. 
Don't deny the wickedness of sin. Don't ignore the ugliness of sin. Fearing God through repentance and faith in Christ will move men out of sin's control and into his service. Got an awesome quote from Calvin. He said, The fear of God is the bridle by which our wickedness is held back. Isn't that good? The fear of God is the bridle by which our wickedness is held back, frees us to indulge in every kind of licentious conduct. Its removal frees us from to indulge in every kind of licentious conduct. In other words, if you don't have any fear of God, you'll do whatever you want to give permission to yourself to do. But if you fear God, it'll restrain you. Do you see how a proper feel of fear of God, if I could build a fence around this property, you guys, let's just say it was only the Ten Commandments. If I built a fence around this property and said, stay in here, and do whatever you want. There's freedom inside of God's laws. And they are meant to protect you and I from the stupidity of our sinfulness. Do whatever you want inside this yard. But you know what your sinful nature does? You walk right up to the fence and you start looking at the highway. And you'll just go out there and get mowed down by a bus. It is your nature to hear these things from God and then to doubt His goodness. To doubt the great generosity of God the Father through His Son at the cross to pay the penalty of sin. There will be a payment for your sin. Do you realize that? Every single man, woman, and child will have a payment for their sin. You either pay it yourself or you find somebody to pay it for you. Do you understand that? The wages of your sin is death. Who's going to pay it? You? Or the Savior. I love this picture of the bridle. The fear of God is the bridle. Do you live in the service of sin? Is sin holding the bridle? Or is your fear of God holding the bridle? Do you live in the service of sin? Or do you live in the service of Christ? Does your mouth produce fruits of sin? Or does your mouth produce the fruits of the grace of God? Your feet take you into the paths of God's ways because of your fear of God. Let's take a minute and and think as we pray here in a minute. But if you're not a Christian, or if you're a sin-loving person who thinks you're a Christian, You've got to realize that the proper fear of God is a hatred of sin. And the way we properly hate sin and cling to God with hope of eternal life is repenting of our sins. Is repenting of our sins and saying, man, the fruit of sin, the way of sin, the mouth of sin is death and pain and suffering and sadness 
and the hope of eternal life is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we must all be seriously looking at sin's work in our lives. So I hope you'll hear God's tender warning. This warning is a negative warning this morning. It's it's saying all of the terrible things that are realities when you will not hear the warning of God regarding the work of sin. So the positive form of this warning is, is leave your sin. Leave your sin. Don't let sin hold the bridle. Don't let sin be your master. And turn to the Lord Jesus. Put your faith and your hope in the Lord Jesus who died. He died to pay the penalty of sin for sinners so that you wouldn't have to if you put your faith in Him. The good master is Christ and the wicked master is sin. So leave the, leave the cruel master of sin. We're going to take a few minutes and have communion with each other. Thinking about this, I want you to think about the conqueror of death as we get ready to have communion today. The one who defied all of sin's temptation and all of sin's corruption. He, he, he did this. He lived as a man. He took on flesh as a man and did that so that his positive righteousness, the righteous life he lived, the perfection that was of the Lord Jesus Christ in the flesh is given to those who put their faith in Him. That's how we can come to the end of this life and have righteousness. We get given the righteousness of Christ. And so as we get ready to have communion, we think about the body of the Lord Jesus and we think about the blood of the Lord Jesus. So we're going to take just a few minutes and I want you to think about the glories and the and the joy that is ours that the Lord Jesus has taken de- death in the place of sinners